I'm Christos Gage, writer of Superior Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man, and Spider Island, and you're listening to The Amazing Spider Talk. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle, all the questions and the webs left out to tangle. I'll be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandon. Welcome to the Amazing Spider Talk. My name is Dan Gavost, and I'm the founder and editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. And I'm Mark Chidacchio, the founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and currently an editor at SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for a special Essentials episode of Amazing Spider Talk. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we hope to look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yes, Dan, we're back to the Essentials. And uh, for this episode, we'll be discussing my pick, which is Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut from Amazing Spider-Man number 229 and 230. Well, boy, this is a famous one. And that's been written. That's written by Roger Stern and penciled by John Romita Jr. Uh, then we'll give out some prizes uh, through our new Patreon. Uh, I was about to call it a gimmick. I don't think that would you would approve of such language, right, Dan? <laughs> Stay on the script, Mark. <laughs> uh, and then conclude with some Flash Thompson Flash reviews. Speaking of going off script. Flash You're always reviews. undermining me, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mark, nothing can stop the juggernaut except for Captain Universe, of course, so let's not try and stop the inevitable discussion of nothing can stop the juggernaut. Dan, that segue was horrendous. It was so bad. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 I love you, so uh, I'll look past it. But um, yeah, so so Dan, the trend continues of like me getting the like really plum stories to talk about for this essential series, whereas you kind of have to like I don't know dig around and and because. When I saw that this one wasn't picked by you, I was like, well, I'm grabbing nothing can stop the juggernaut. Uh, (laughs) um, I mean, not only is it like one of my all-time favorite stories, but I mean, from an essential standpoint, the reason why I picked this was, I mean, to me, this is the quintessential Spider-Man is in way over his head but won't quit story. And this is, you know, we've seen this many times since then. We saw this, I mean, even in the really great coming home arc against Moreland, we saw this. We saw this a few months or not a few months, a few years later with Tom DeFalco when Spider-Man went against Fire Lord. It was a very similarly, similarly structured story. Uh, Dan Slott goes to this well a lot. I mean, this is, this is the template. I think that every one of those stories is followed. It's also kind of 
from a you know broader standpoint, probably the best usage of a non-Spider-Man villain in the character's history, and that was the specialty of Roger Stern. I mean, he came in, and you know, one of his big credos was he didn't want to use the rogues. That's why we had the Hobgoblin instead of a Green Goblin, and that's why you know we had he, we, you know Spider-Man was fighting guys like um, Mister Hyde and Cobra and uh, Tarantula. And- Tarantula. Well, Tarantula's is technically a Spider-Man villain. I mean, he was introduced, but like, not a well, not not one that's commonly used or anything. I mean, it was it was it was an interesting run, but a very celebrated run. And and I was going to say, you know, in terms of of that, this is to me the best snapshot of that peak popularity period for Spider-Man. I mean, we talked about this a little bit too when we did the Venom story. I mean, that was kind of like Spider-Man at his apex, but. Um, I almost feel like after a lull from the Bronze Age, uh, the Len Wein to Marv Wolfman to Denny O'Neill years, you know, Stern came on the book and all of a sudden Spider-Man was the it book again and, and with John Romita Jr. with him. So and, and I don't know about you, Dan, but I would I, I, I would say safely that Roger Stern's work on Spider-Man was probably the best run since Lee and Ditko. Right. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, and, I, and I wonder uh, how much you think the character's popularity today rides on uh, the quality of Stern's storytelling. I mean, yes, he was followed by great stories with DeFalco and Friends. Um, but like this started, you know, you said peak popularity. There was a whole generation of comic fans, I think, that grew up reading this book at this time. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, this this was probably... The run that, you know, I don't want to say, I know we have some younger listeners out there, but like I think in terms of our contemporaries as readers or, or maybe people a couple years older than us, I mean, this was this was their book. Or I mean, even the writers of modern Spider-Man. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this was, I mean, yeah, you talk to some of the, the artists and they talk about, you know, like a Stegman or something and, you know, he'll, he'll talk about McFarlane, but he'll also talk about Ramita Jr. and his work on the book during this time, not in when Ramita came back. And it's a, it's such a different style, right? I mean, like not to, not to jump into the, 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 the finer points of the book yet, but like that is always one of the fascinations. I mean, like you could definitely see the elements of J.R.J.R. that carried over, but it does look completely different, right? Yeah. Kind of this, like, you know, some people would say maybe evolution or de-evolution of his style where it would become simpler and more unique. And here it very much feels like maybe like a Ross Andrew or even his father. But you can you can see, I think especially in the shading, you can see like this kind of thin line work that he would become known for later on in his life. Yeah, but um, yeah, but um, that's 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 basically why I picked this. Um, you know, spoiler alert, I don't think a lot of people are going to argue with this pick. I mean, do you have any arguments against this pick, Dan? No, not really. I mean, it's a great comic. Uh, you know, rereading it, there was a moment where I thought, oh man, actually there is something really wrong with this issue, um, regarding Spider-Man's tactics. And if there's one thing that I'll say about this story, like not to exclude it from our essentials list, because I think it's. It deserves to be there. But it is a very unique story for Spider-Man that isn't really in- indicative of what Spider-Man stories are kind of known for. And it's that a lo- half of this story is a revenge tale. And it's something that you kind of don't really see very often in Spider-Man books. 
Yeah, you know, it's I, and I I agree with you. It, it's like in rereading this for this episode, Dan, and I, and I've read this story so many times, and it's and it still kind of struck me that I put the pieces together maybe because I was reading it with a more discerning eye for this. Um, you know, the revenge from this comes from this op- basically the almost the entire opening issue of this two issue arc, which is you know this very strange juggernaut kind of being coached by uh black tom cassidy to to attack madam webb um and and you know juggernaut because he cannot be stopped physically in any you know that he is he is the 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 constant force in motion um you know does get to to madam webb and kind of unplugs her from her chair and and man madam webb is such a strange character right <laughs> i mean like well, like we're rereading this i kind of got the sense that uh stern's intention was to make this the final madam webb story and it probably should have been <laughs> <laughs> like this is definitely a character i mean you know again not to make it sound like we're 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 ripping on this story but yeah, I, I I I never quite understood the appeal of of this knowing a know all kind of. I mean, Madame Web actually kind of works in like the current Spider Man universe, which has become full of you know secret scrolls and web of lives and mystical things that I don't really associate with the character. But I guess it's in the text here, right? So. What do I know? <laughs> uh, yeah, it is kind of the birth of – I mean not this issue in particular, but the Madam Web is kind of the birth of the mysticism stuff creeping its way into Spider-Man. And yeah, it's something I've never wanted to associate with the character, but now we've had like decades of mystical stories. I mean even even JMS you know, kind of took a mystical route about it, and I prefer that interpretation to – any of the other mystical routes that we've gone down. But, uh, yeah, Madam Web is kind of, I guess, the first appearance of it. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of crazy. But, um, so, yeah, I mean, basically, having all this Madam Web stuff kind of is the lead-up and it's the impetus for what is really what this story is known for, which is the inevitable showdown between Spider-Man and Juggernaut. I almost forget about it because the showdown between Spider-Man and Juggernaut is so phenomenal. But there are other things in this comic besides the fight that I thought were really cool. Like, um, and, and this was like, again, like you, you look back at the Stern run, something he just had such a knack for, which was like this way of like he, he could just capture in the span of a few pages, like every single element going on in Peter's personal life beyond Spider-Man. Like he would just set everything up. I mean, in this one, you know, within the first few pages, we get interaction between Peter and Robbie and Jonah and Betty Brand, who's back in town. Um, we get a reference to the black pack, uh, the black cat, uh, glory is, uh, is in this issue. I mean, like, it's like, you, you know, you, you're in the newsroom, you're in the city, you know, like it's, it, I mean, there's no Aunt May. I don't know if this is one of the points where he's fighting with Aunt May over grad school, but, um, but like just, just the, just the ability to kind of weave in all these other little elements and like, you know, like not to go then and now with it, but you, you sometimes feel like that almost has to be forced in a bit more now. Um, whereas this just feels natural and part of the flow of the story, right? Even Yeah, even when I'm laughing to myself over here, even when it's referring – there's like a scene here that kind of puts a capper on Peter's affair with Betty 
which it's kind of a, a point I always laugh at when looking back yeah. at the history of those characters together. That, <laughs> that Peter was kind of like, of not of his own control, drawn into an affair with Betty over Ned Leeds. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Betty. <laughs> oh man, she's got a new hat here, though. So there you go. Go, Betty. Yeah, she's looking nifty. I mean, you know, but yeah, that's right. There was the there was definitely like the Betty. The Betty is back and. What was that? This was like Marv Wolfman stuff, right? Like she came, comes back and like kind of convinces Peter that she is divorcing Ned, but then actually doesn't. Yeah, right. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they carry on this really awkward affair, and Peter like convinces himself that he's actually trying to help Ned Leeds and Betty break up with each other because their marriage is doomed. And you're like, oh, come on, man. That's, that's really weak, like a really weak excuse for getting involved in an affair. Yeah, yeah, but um, anyway. <laughs> so again, I mean, like getting these elements of again more than just Peter's life as a superhero. I mean that that's always been to me the verve of what makes Spider-Man so special, and and Stern was one of the best. I mean, you know, I I I, I don't even, I don't even know if you could say that Lee Dicko and Ramita kind of captured that as as well as i mean defalco would do it too great you know what i mean but but like i feel like stern was like really the first writer to just really work in that stuff so effortlessly like and 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 still build drama and tension uh with these little details as well you know well another thing that i noticed that he does and a lot of the writers of this era did as well as like stan lee is that Stern really knows how to build tension and tell a story through the drama of his words. Yeah. You know, like, it's an art and a perspective that I don't think comics do very much anymore. Like, the narration blocks here, you know, are told from this kind of omnipotent narrator's perspective. And Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man definitely doesn't do that anymore. And, you know, I get the feeling that maybe, like, Marvel communicated to its writers that that's kind of a dated way of doing things, although I feel like uh, Conway still does it a little bit, maybe in Spiral, but um, it really brings a kind of grand melodrama into the comics that lets you get on board with the goofiness of it all. It sells it for, like, more than it is. Like, they use adjectives and the grand drama that plays out in the street of New York, and I miss that kind of, like, storytelling where the writers have, like, convinced themselves that they're writing Shakespeare. Yeah, well, because that's the thing. I mean, this is it's superhero comics. This is supposed to be melodrama, you know. I mean, like it's it's that's part of I feel the appeal of it. I mean, like, and that's that's definitely in like the grand style of Stanley and Kirby and Dicko. You know, like go back to all those old Fantastic Four issues and like you know the cosmic soap opera you know like I mean and this is you know this is the street level soap opera I guess you would say but um whenever I read things like that I always hear Stan Lee's voice in my head from (laughs) I mean from any number of things but like playing the video games where they get Stan Lee to come and do the voices and introduce scenes I love that stuff because that that's what Spider-Man is to me what Spider-Man didn't know was the juggernaut could not be stopped. <laughs> yeah, something like that. I don't know. I'm sorry. Your Stanley uh, sounds somewhat like Flash Thompson. No, it doesn't. <laughs> Maybe a little. <laughs> but um, so we do, speaking of the drama, we do get in this first issue an altercation between Juggernaut and Spider-Man. And, and, and I, 
I just love how I mean Spider-Man is like he he's he's totally at a panic here. He's like trying to protect citizens, webbing things up to protect people from this this beast of a man just plowing through the city and Juggernaut barely notices him. And I love that because they pay it off later, but like just like just the minor anno- like Juggernaut's not even trying to like to to fight him, you know? He's just like what is this? You know, He's walking like, in a straight line towards his goal. Yeah, yeah. It's like it, it, that. That is like, I mean, again, it just sets up what we're what we're dealing with here. This is not even, you know, you have one person fighting for his life and the other who's not even fighting. It was just just like such a unheard of thing in a Spider Man fight to this point. You know, it's always it's always been you know Electro is doing something or Sandman's doing something and, and, you know, goading Spider-Man into a fight. Let's go. Let's throw down. I'm going to beat you. I'm going to kill you. Whatever. Juggernaut's not, you know, he's got evil intentions, but he doesn't give a crap (laughs) about, about the hero here. I love, Um, I love the grandness to this fight too. Like there's points where Spider-Man, like, I mean, he's trying everything, which is really great. You know, I talk about, wanting to see Spider-Man's powers at play. And he really utilizes everything at his disposal to do this. But I love that, you know, one of the key things that Spider-Man does is try to save citizens. So he literally, this fight is so big, he has to web off whole streets and avenues of New York City to prevent citizens from getting involved in the fight. And it really gives you this kind of, like, grand New York City playground feel that, I don't think you really get to see that often in, in modern comics. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now one of the other things too, I love about this, you know, the first part of this story is, you know, it's clear that Spider-Man's in over his head, but like through a little bit of exposition, Stern manages to work in, why this has to be Spider-Man fighting the juggernaut. It's like, it's, and, and it's like, you know, like we, we've, we've talked in the past about the shared universe of Marvel and, and that, that was one of the things that really set Marvel apart, certainly from DC in like the sixties and seventies. Um, but I felt like there was also a period where Marvel kind of got away or, or even when it was a shared universe, it was like characters would cross over and stuff when they needed to, but you know, if Spider-Man was doing something against Sandman, then he was doing something against Sandman. Here, it's like, okay, Juggernaut, he's an X-Men guy. Well, they're not, and they're 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 preoccupied. Well, let me get the Avengers. Well, they're they're off. I think this was maybe during the Korvac saga or something. So they're like on another dimensional plane right now. The Fantastic Four, I think, were in the negative zone or something like that during like the John Byrne era. And it's like just the fact that. Like through just very simple exposition, Stern works in like, no, nobody, you know, call these other guys. Nobody's home. It's all you, (laughs) Spider-Man. I I could just imagine that Stern is this like harsh continuity freak that, you know, he it was just eating away at him that he like was like, I have to make sure I can justify the right time to tell this particular story in the larger Marvel continuity. And that that's a level of continuity like clearance that you rarely see. Yeah, well, it probably also helped the fact that Stern was, I think, also scripting Avengers at this point, so he obviously ha- knew what was going on there. Uh, so that wouldn't have been Korvac saga because that was not Stern. Um, but but yeah, they were doing something cosmic, I'm sure. 
Um, and then also Stern's, I think Stern's best friend in the industry has always been John Byrne and he was doing fantastic four. So I'm sure like they like, you know, he knew what he, he, like you said, he knew that this was the time because he was in contact either. He either was the writer or knew the other writer intimately where he could be like, Hey, what's going on in your book right now where I could let, you know, so I can maybe not use the fantastic four. You know what I mean? Like it was um, kind of funny how that worked out that way. Right. <laughs> it, remi- it reminds me a lot of the return of venom story that we talked about several essentials episodes ago where he checks in with the fantastic four and they're like, we can't, you know, Venom's like, they're not allowed to help you, you know, and yeah. I kind of like it when they go out of their way to kind of involve the rest of the world in the story. Um, one other thing I noticed that, um, you know, it's kind of we, – we take for granted as part of a lot of these essential Spider-Man stories is that Stern finds a way here to incorporate uh, Uncle Ben into the story and that, like, Spider-Man is feeling some, like, guilt that he couldn't stop juggernaut from hurting madam webb and he links it back to his failure with um uncle ben but um and correct me if i'm wrong here mark at the time you know i think for now we take it for granted that uncle ben's you know story in amazing fantasy 15 is like what propels spider-man to do anything but uh at the time like that wasn't like really as heavily leaned on of of a of a trope of her motivation for spider-man so Stern bringing it up here is kind of like a deep cut and 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 something that I think would set uh, a kind of standard for a lot of Spider-Man stories moving forward to whereas now like we can't go an issue without Uncle Ben being called back to. Yeah, I mean I would I would say certainly in this like era and kind of like the Bronze Age, I mean, you know, like certainly when Stan Lee was writing he would call back to it here and there, like an ASM 50 and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, like there was definitely a, a, a run of issues for probably over a decade where we, yeah, Uncle Ben was really, I mean, he get referenced, but in terms of the lesson being imparted and, and what that means. And, and I think Stern kind of bringing it back, it's like what opened the floodgates for so many other people. And clear, obviously, I mean, DeFalco and friends, I mean, that mantra meant so much. To, I mean, you know, friends would talk about, you know, must also, right. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, like, like this was, this was like, you know, Spider-Man 101 for them. But, but I think Stern probably kind of, invited that back you know like that idea of no the the uncle ben lesson it's important the uncle ben moment you know like living that living that up and yeah and if anything really solidified that like the great power great responsibility as being a core element of spider-man it's 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 the inclusion in the movie which almost kind of like that thing there retconned everything to say that uncle ben said that to peter you know and I, it, at this point now, it's just kind of part of continuity um, that, that he said that to Peter. But Stern doesn't make any reference to that here, but the lesson is still important. And I thought that was interesting to bring up. Yes, definitely. Um, so, like, moving into Amazing Spider-Man 230, now, to me, this is the issue where I feel that John Romita Jr. artistically f- makes his mark. And kind of sets himself up to be a star because, and and you can also make the case um, that the Hobgoblin issue two thirty eight he does this too, but I guess he does it here first, which is like just the visual plotting of the fight 
between Spider-Man and Juggernaut, like the pacing, the, 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 the intricate, like, you know, Spider-Man is here in one panel there in another while, you know what I'm trying to say? You're, you're always so much better describing the visuals than I am, Dan, but like this, like the intricacy of, of, of the action, which just makes it so dynamic. Well, I really liked what um, Adam Kubert said on, on the last episode in the interview that Spider-Man is like a rubber band. And, mm. and, and I, think, I think that really is, comes to play here. But it, uh, if I'm going to talk about two visuals from 230 that I think are the stunners, it's, I mean, you've got to go with Juggernaut coming out of the flames. Yes. Or even just the explosion in general is phenomenal. Yes. And the moment where Spider-Man is like trying to get his helmet off and he's just tearing away at his suit as yeah. Spider-Man just tries to hang on. I mean, I think if you want any indication about where he, John Romita Jr. would go as an artist, I think for me, those are the two instances from this comic that say like, oh, this is a guy to watch. He's going to be somebody. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, when I think of like first – first level Ramita, like the first, the, from the first wave of Spider-Man books. Like I, I, I always think of the juggernaut and flames. And then, like I said, the second one is always the, the, the reveal of the hobgoblin, which I think might show up on this list at some point. Yeah, Spoiler I, alert. I, I, th- I, th- I think it might. <laughs> um, but, um, and, and, and like I said, just this fight, the fight that we keep talking about, the fight, the fight. I mean, Spider-Man is throwing, everything he can at this guy and it's just like his his futile efforts are just so it's just so despairing right and 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 like he even ratchets it up to a level where he crashes a oil tanker into this guy like he's he's like and like as he does it he's or the second after he does he's like oh my god i killed somebody and of course he does it but like like the fact that like trying to beat this guy has got him worked so much into a frenzy. Like this is something I love about it because it like shows both the frailty of Spider-Man as a character that he still does make mistakes, you know, like it's not, he's not without, without flaws. He, he, he's not only virtue. Um, but even, you know, the, the immediate aftermath of that mistake, he feels guilt and remorse for it. You know, and that's the, I always think the important distinction about uh, Peter and Spider-Man as a character. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because uh, when I was rereading this, I, I at that moment I thought, oh my God, Spidey essentially murdered that guy and I had forgotten about it. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have to kind of like get into an argument with Mark about this because yeah. <laughs> because I don't know that I could I could promote a book where Spider-Man like murders someone and then – and then re- uh, continuing reading that he, like, questions his own actions, I was like, okay, all right, all right. At least he acknowledges it. And there's a couple of moments like that in this book where Spidey does things that are kind of uncharacteristic of him, and Stern makes sure to, like, comment on them, that he knows that that's not part of the character and that Spidey knows that he, this is an abnormal situation. Yeah, and, and this goes back again to the, me saying, like, this is kind of like a revenge story, which is very unique for Spider-Man stories. Yeah, no, I definitely, and and I'm, I'm glad you said this is this is a very abnormal situation, which is I think is how you can ex- explain almost any kind of inconsistency, if you will, in the character, because it's like, I, I mean, you know, up until this point, Spider-Man was never in a 
fight like this. Maybe, you know, even, even when he would fight the Hulk in, in a story, it's like, you know, he knows the problem with the Hulk is that he knows he's, you know, underneath, he's not only just a monster. So it's kind of like, you know, I just need to survive long enough to kind of withstand the barrage where with this, you know, he knows he, he, he just, you know, he assumes that Juggernaut is 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 evil. You know, it's he's he is a bad person, and you know, someone with this level of power. You know, like how do you how do you stop that? You know, obviously, you can't. Except he does find a way, right? And this is this is again the the one of those quintessential Spider-Man moments. Like, kind of to me, this is on par with. You, you know, lifting the steel and 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 putting putting the suit back on in Amazing Spider-Man 50, which is um, the weakness. You know, basically, he just uses his his brains and his persistence to to trick Juggernaut into falling into a wet foundation of cement. Although, is it is it his brains? It seems almost like he ends up doing it by pure accident. Uh, well, he because he picks up on he 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 does find the weakness, if you will, which was that if he covered up Juggernaut's eyes and makes and blinds him temporarily, it would distract Juggernaut long enough where he might be able to capitalize on that somehow. And 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 he kind of like you know, it's kind of like that 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 dog just sinking its teeth in and not letting go. And you talked about the visual of like getting the costume torn off, which I think really describes the tenacity of Spider-Man there. Um, well, he but, even uh, says it in his like mind. He's like, I'm going to die, but I'm going to keep doing this, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and that's, that's awesome. That never, never say die Spidey moments, you know, for now, because he doesn't have the power of Captain Universe to, uh, to do right. the juggernaut. <laughs> well, I mean, what I've always described this story as, and, and you know, it, it even though Juggernaut's clearly not a Spider-Man villain and Sp- Spider-Man is clearly overmatched in this, I mean, there is something poetic about what's going on here because, you know, you have Juggernaut who by very virtue, nothing can stop the Juggernaut. He is he is the unstoppable force. Um, whereas Spider-Man kind of here proves that he is, he has the, the unflappable will, the unstoppable will. So it's like, you know, that, you know, immovable force, immovable object kind of a thing. It's, it's like that, you know, the, 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 the object is juggernaut and the force is Spider-Man's will. And, and it does end up working, you know, like it's, it, it, there can be a draw, which I would, I would define the ending of this as being a draw. He slows down juggernaut long enough where the, the quote unquote authorities could deal with him, which do they <laughs> we do, probably not? <laughs> no, he just is down there for a little while, just yeah. getting angrier. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, I mean, you could say Spider-Man won, but I mean, it's not like, it's not like, you know, Juggernaut got locked away for a long time. I'm sure he was probably back torturing the X-Men in short order. Yeah, I so. mean, as soon as that cement hardened, he could just break right out of it. Right, exactly. Yeah. But, but um, there, there's, there's no random servant, like in the Moreland story, to shoot him at the last minute and save the day. There and you have go. kind of a cheap way out of Spider-Man not killing someone. There you go. Yeah. Um, so that's nothing can stop the Juggernaut. 
Anything else you'd want to say about this, Dan? No, I love it. It's a great, it's a great issue, and and I I like that you pointed out that it was kind of the formula for all these stories that come afterwards. Uh, and the the more we talk about it, the more I thinking about the coming home arc. It really is very similar to that arc, and and you know I I think maybe coming home has more of a kind of like uh, I guess. I think I think it's it's ending is a bit more triumphant, yes, uh, th- than this one, uh, and the situation feels a lot more dire I think than this one because if Spider Man wanted to leave the Juggernaut alone he certainly could, uh, yes. whereas that's not the case with Moreland and I think right. that's enough to differentiate them. Uh, yeah, this one doesn't feel quite so like apocalyptic for Spider Man. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right, Dan. I mean it's. Spider-Man, because of who he is as a character, made jugger- this Juggernaut story apocalyptic, but it did not need to be. Whereas with Moreland and Coming Home, there was no choice. And also, I mean, Coming Home is also different because it feels more of like a reboot of the of what Spider-Man was in terms of a narrative at that point. Whereas this is this is just in continuity and the fact that like something, you know, or like in the stream of a, of a, of a run of issues and the fact that like, kind of like in that stream, you have essentially the template of a, of a, a new kind of Spider-Man story is, is pretty impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. Cool. Well, th- that's a great issue. I hope it makes our, our final list, which is going to be a lot of tough choices and also is going to be, far longer away from now than I initially expected when we started this thing. Yeah, that's okay. We'll just have to remind people. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of which, uh, people, see, this is yeah. a re- another really bad transition. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about our friendly neighborhood Spider Talk Members Club. Stand a little greater, walk a little prouder, be an innovator, laugh a little Yeah, Dan. So our, our our rebooted and all new, all different, friendly neighborhood Spider Talk Members Club is off to a roaring start, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I, I got to say, Mark, I've been truly humbled by all the generosity of our listeners joining in to help support us and get some really awesome things out of it. It's got to be the video. Y- you the, think the, it's the video? I think, you know, and, and you're acting in the video. I mean, you know. Like your performance, I think sells sells the site and the podcast tremendously. Well, well, you know, I'm a white man, so I definitely could be eligible for some Oscars for this performance. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, true enough, but um, so I mean, here here are some fast stats so far. We've given away what over sixty digital codes to members. Yeah, yeah, over sixty of them in two weeks. So you oh. know, it's just a veritable smorgasbord on there. Of uh, of awesome codes and not just Spider Man codes, you know, we gave away like all three issues of Vision and Daredevil uh, uh, this week of the newly rebooted series. So we're gonna keep it coming uh, every week with some awesome digital codes. 
That's awesome. And then, of course, you know, one of our big giveaways for for members was the uh, Untold Tales of Spider-Man Omnibus. Uh, And we have a winner there. It's Chris Dunn. So congratulations to Chris. Yeah. So, Chris, check your mail in the next coming days because you're going to be receiving a large package with (laughs) with every issue of that uh, Untold Tales of Spider-Man Omnibus. We we promise it's not a deadly weapon. (laughs) Yeah. Although... Or it could be used as one, though. <laughs> yeah, just like we said, drop it from from on top of a building. I don't know if it's a maximum velocity will take someone out, but I, right. I get a good sense that it might. And, uh, and if you, and if you want to thank us, Chris, there I believe one of those issues has Aunt May's wheat cakes recipe in it, so you could send us some wheat cakes. Absolutely, yeah. We <laughs> talked about that in the past. Doing that. Well, yeah. you know, <laughs> speaking of big giveaways, our next big giveaway is part of our club is really great. I got it sitting here on the desk right next to me. It's the brand new. In fact, I don't even think it's been released yet. So you're going to get something before it comes out. And it is the Marvel's Avengers Encyclopedia. It's this big hardcover book uh, of every single character that's ever been in the Avengers and all the details that go into that. It's really cool. So, uh, a brand new Avengers book for all you guys out there. So we'll announce the winner of that in about two weeks. So you have two weeks to get in on the action for the raffle to win this big Avengers book. Holy crap, Dan. Yeah, it's really cool. (laughs) Oh man. I don't even want to know what you did to get that. So (laughs) (laughs) it was me and flash and we, we definitely, well, we, let's just say this. We didn't break into Marvel's publishing headquarters to steal this book. We did not. Okay. But, but you might've Rochambeaued someone for it, right? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So, uh, you know, as per joining our club, it means we get, we have to thank you for joining our club. We don't even have to, we want to thank you. So Mark, we split these names up between the two of us. Let's butcher some names, shall we? Let's see. Well, you start then. Okay. So the first nine members of our new club are some of our, uh, our reoccurring donors we've seen before us, but whatever, we thank all of you. So that's Kyle Kreiss, Matt Strott, Carl Reichling, Chris Dunn, Tim Peterson, Adam Skucka, Chris Stokes, Kevin Ewing, and Thomas Aiello. How about awesome. how about you, Mark? Yeah, also special thanks out to Kevin Dorsey, Thomas Smith. Oh, that was an easy one. Uh, Jason Carrier, Scott McElroy, Patrick Beeler, Jason Graining, Chris Baker, Charles Kendall, and Laron Halleck. Yeah, so uh, thank you again, everybody. Uh, Already in the span of two weeks, we already passed two of our lifetime goals for our, our, our Patreon account. And the first one was that Mark and I would record a yearly members request episode. We've done one before, but now we're going to be guaranteeing you that we're going to do one where three of the members of our club get to choose topics or books for us to cover on the show. Uh, and again, we're going to do a podcast about them. So if you want to hear us talk about what's a topic, Mark? Favorite Spider-Man gadgets. Okay, that's good. Uh, or, or possibly whether annuals count, which they definitely do. So there's another topic we could finally put to rest. Uh, or if you want to hear us talk about, give me a random issue, Mark. Um, amazing Spider-Man two eighty three. Which one is that? 
No idea. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. You can ask us to review Amazing Spider-Man 283, where someone is yelling at us through their iPhone uh, listening to this. That's the mind worm issue. It's not the mind worm no, issue. I, th- I think that's that might be gang war. Oh, yeah, you're point. probably right. Yeah, that, might be, that might be fat suit daredevil. Uh, they, <laughs> <laughs> so, again, you know, uh, the next the next goal that we haven't met yet, but we're very close to meeting is that is to ensure that there will always be visuals to the podcast, even when my schedule gets really crazy. So basically what you're doing is guaranteeing that I'll be staying up late one night every week, not getting sleep. Uh, by getting us to our next goal, so aren't, aren't you glad we have generous listeners, Dan? Yeah, yeah. It's, you're, basically, you're getting an awesome podcast, and you're also contributing to my early grave. We're totally gonna end up having to do like those special B B title episodes, aren't we? Hey, you know what? <laughs> I still remember when we were going over the levels, and I suggested that you were like, "We can't possibly do that." I'm like, "We'll never reach that level, though, Dan." <laughs> <laughs> if if like Donald Trump is listening right now, he could put all his money into this and and just murder me straight off the bat. Yeah, I'm going to make it huge. It's going to be a huge episode of of, <laughs> of of this little this talking spider Megan Kelly thing. <laughs> <laughs> so again, I, I I don't know about you Mark, but I can't believe how supportive everybody's been. So I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for uh for helping our show and and I we're already moving closer to the things that I want to do with the site like I mean I could be honest here over the past week, our site has developed a problem that makes it really difficult to save content on it. And, like, I'm just pleading for help to help us redesign this website so I don't have to spend hours on the phone <laughs> with GoDaddy trying to solve these problems. Yes, the, the back end of the site is a, is a rather puzzly one, isn't it? <laughs> Every week there's some new bizarre thing, and I call them up, and they're like, it's a plug-in. And I'm like, well, nothing has changed. Why is it suddenly doing this? So... Anyway, that's a bit more sausage than I think some people want, but Mmm, uh, sausage. <laughs> as long as it's not Canadian bacon. So uh, uh, yeah. How about sausage and white gravy, Dan? Oh, I, I'm all about that. I'm all about okay. that. Okay. Anyway, so yeah, so remember folks, for those who haven't donated yet, and then no pressure, but for five dollars, you can get t shirts, comics, bumper stickers, mugs, our mugs. And so much more. Please check us out. Check out the Friendly Neighborhood Spider Talk Members Club links on our sites and the logos. And, and join, our, join our team. Join the club. And cue the song. Right, Dan? I don't know. <laughs> That's- Well, Mark, it looks like it's that time of the show uh, where where we uh, invite a special guest back to help us review all the Spider-Man B-books. Although, every time we do this, I'm beginning to think of these B-books are becoming really the A-books of, of this line. Well, everything's an A-book when I'm on the show, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah, Flash. Uh, 
I'm, I'm in a good spirit today, and, and I liked a lot of these books, so why, why don't you get in on the fun here? Well, yeah, well, you know, so uh, I, I, I was not really reading many of these books, you know, I, I, I sometimes question if I'm even able to see straight to read. Um, but, uh, you know, I will say that this Secret Wars thing that I see you both are going to talk about, um, that was some pretty crazy stuff, I think. Even, I for, even for a space knight like yourself? Oh, this this was, uh, you know, but there was only one of me and there's like what, like 37 Thors and, a, and an Infinity Gauntlet and like some guy make, getting a cheeseburger recreates the world or something. I don't even know. Give me a cheeseburger. Watch what I'll do. <laughs> I, I, I'm scared to see what that would result in. Oh, don't, don't be so skittish. But, uh, um, you know, I, I don't have too many obnoxious things to say tonight. Um, I, 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 I've heard we might, might come up in a future episode that apparently i i might be offending some listeners <laughs> who, who knows <laughs> who knows flash but uh we'll address that at a later time okay well you know i'm gonna turn the, the mic back over to janakio and you know i guess my parting shot to you dan is that you smell and let's do the reviews all right well, i heard he closed so we said you smelled yeah, I, I, I've been having some really bad halitosis recently. I didn't realize it was transferring across the country. That was, that was. I mean, I mean, even from Flash's standpoint, that's low. But whatever, man. You, you don't, you, you don't seem too, too, too bent out of shape by it. So yeah, well, he reeks of booze. So I'll be, I'll be kind and not bring it up to his face. Absolutely. Well, anyway, here we go. You know the, you know the drill, folks. Or if you don't. We do the B-Book, 60 seconds of pop, and we just give it a yay or nay, thumbs up, thumbs down. So uh, why don't we start with Secret Wars 9, Dan? All right, Mark. Secret Wars number 9, the final issue of Secret Wars. Yes. I'm going to count you in in three, two, one. Well, after a long wait and numerous delays, Jonathan Hickman serves up a very worthy finale to his multiversal story that reads like a true epic. Ultimately, this comes down to a story between Reed and Doom, which is probably as it should be, and plays to all of Hickman's best strengths as a Marvel writer over the past few years. The ramifications of the story do reach the entire Marvel universe, but this feels very much like a pro, uh, feels less like a prologue to all new, all different Marvel, uh, as much as it feels more like an epilogue to the beginning of the Marvel age of comics when the first issue of Fantastic Four came out. Sadly, due to many factors, we may never return to an era where the F4 were Marvel's flagship characters. But either way, that's not what we're here to talk about. This is such a fitting send-off for the team. Uh, and we also get a great payoff to Miles entering the 616 because he gave Molecule, Molecule, Man, Molecule Man a hamburger, of course. Uh, fan club certified for me. I'm going to count you in three, two, one. Mark, I can't think of a more optimistic comic book written in the past 10 years than Jonathan Hickman's end to his Secret Wars epic. The final pages of this book are dripping with del delicately chosen words that function both as a fitting end to this series, but I thought also as a meta-commentary on superhero comics and Hickman's own time at Marvel, which is surprising from a guy whose mantra for the past several years was, everything ends. And to see him reverse this at the last second in such a stunning, creative, and optimistic way 
did a lot for me to renew my faith in both Marvel and superhero comics in general. That Saad Ribic turned this comic around so fast and still such a visual delight I thought was also remarkable. Could it be that Secret Wars is Marvel's greatest event story since the first Secret Wars? I think so. I'm calling this one fan club certified. All right, Dan. Spider-Man Deadpool number one. Count me in. All right. Three, two, one. In a sign that Marvel won't boycott all properties owned by Fox Studios, we're getting the full court press on Deadpool with this series. I'm not sure I'm entirely in love with the premise of Spider-Man just loathing Deadpool with every fiber of his being, but Joe Kelly knows and writes both characters so well, lending the series with a shot of instant credibility, even if there are some cynical cash-grabbing reasons behind its existence. The jokes mostly land here, and I've always appreciated Deadpool's manic energy when written by Kelly. In Spider-Man's new status quo was worked in rather well by the creators here including a cliffhanger which has certainly served this story through at least one full arc i say fan club certified three two one well mark i went into this story with some reservations particularly that this would be a deadpool centric story that focused mainly on the jokes and wit of that character thereby reducing spidey to a bland jokey straight man second fiddle the deadpool I shouldn't have been concerned, though, especially with writer Joe Kelly at the helm. Spider-Man is totally in character here, with his new status quo actually fitting in quite well. And Deadpool is funny, but retains the tragedy that I think makes his character more than a flat one-note joke. The humor nearly always works here, with many jokes playing off a dozen pages later. Particularly the tremendous series of actions that led up to an E.T. joke that made me laugh out loud. (laughs) I can't neglect to say that Ed McGuinness's art is perhaps the best that these characters have been looking in a long time, and I couldn't be more excited to see the crazy places that this team takes our characters next i'm calling this one fan club certified all right silk number three is next dan yeah all right we did weren't super hot on the last one so let's see how this one turns out and uh so far mark you and i are in lockstep agreement which again seems to be the trend recently yeah i don't know looks like we're sharing brains now dan i don't like that (laughs) all right let's count you in for silk number three in three two one I wasn't the biggest proponent of Silk pre-relaunch, but I recognized it brought a certain verve and quirkiness to the Spider-Book arena and really wanted to give this new series a chance. Three issues in, I'm a little unsure if that was a wise decision, Dan. This book is a mess of repeated themes, jokes, and action sequences that provide me with very little insight to this character and what she's trying to achieve. This storyline of double-triple turns against the Black Hat is a non-starter. I find myself caring less and less about the protagonist, the villains, or any of the ancillary characters. It's just not the shot in the arm this book needed, and I can't imagine that this is still going to be a linchpin for sales. I say Puny Parker. Wah, wah. Yeah, sorry. I, it, and if we end up stop reviewing Silk, it's because I stopped the book, Dan. I'm getting close. Are you still <laughs> picking up Venom Space Night? I am, but that's, that's about to close soon, too, I think. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dan. Three, two, one. Uh, if I had thought the second issue of Silk was a setback, stall of a book, then, uh, Mark, I got to agree with you. This issue is just hitting the brakes. Yeah. After the tease of an interesting interaction with Peter Parker last issue, this story pretty much does nothing with it and sets Cindy back to repeating her actions of the previous issue. The art is even more distractingly sloppy here, particularly when it comes to rending Peter's new suit, rendering, rather, Peter's new suit. 
But in some places, the visuals look like they were distorted through a fish eye lens. Artistic choice or not, it seems unmotivated and sloppy. I'll continue to stress just how uncomfortable I am with the growing army of goblin mutants occupying the sewers of, the sewers of New York City. Goblin Nation was under, understandable to a point. It wouldn't be the first time that people would be attracted to join up with a narcissistic billionaire, but I think it's just weird to see goblin kids operating like a foot clan in the sewers. Not exactly what I want to see the goblin doing, though that's just my own particular taste. So I'm calling this one Puny Parker. All right, Dan. Count me in for Spider-Gwen, number radioactive Spider-Gwen number four. Yeah, you got to get it right, even though no one is. I know. <laughs> All right, so three, two, one. So after a sluggish relaunch that seemingly focused on the most mundane elements of the Peter-Gwen drama, Spider-Gwen, I believe, has roared back with a vengeance the past two issues, bringing in a new iteration of Harry Osborn that is tragic and horrifying. This issue was almost all based around one fight scene, but Latour and Rodriguez make it work with the pacing and the layout of the story, constantly ratcheting up the drama on every page. The final reveal of the issue is poised to set up a whole host of storyline possibilities, could Gwen be an unluckier character than the 616 Peter Dan? Fan Club certified for me. And let me count you in three, two, one. Well, Mark, when I first read this issue, I thought to myself, did I just miss 20 issues of this story? It was odd enough that Harry Osborne was reintroduced last issue only to ride off on a goblin glider, but to have him and Gwen have a dramatic, climactic battle of the streets of New York City in this issue, it was just too much for me. Without, without developing a relationship over a number of issues, I just thought there, there were no stakes for me as a reader throughout this story. That's not to say that this issue isn't well done. As a final part of a building character drama, I think this issue could have operated as an excellent, if not great, all-timer classic showdown, but as a random issue, there's just no weight to any of this story. It continues to be my complaint about this series, that everything is rushed, every story is stuck on fast-forward. It's as if this book, one of Marvel's best-selling titles, is operating on borrowed time. And if it keeps acting this way, as far as I'm concerned, it is for me. So I'm calling this one Puny Parker. Wow, strong words, Dan. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, it's like, take a chill pill, Spider-Gwen. We love you. You don't have to, like, the character bios at the back of the book are well written, but, like, it's it's a per- terrible excuse for skipping past characters' drama and setup. I, I don't know. I just find it frustrating. Okay. Well, I don't want to... <laughs> I'm a little I'm a little scared right now. So let's get to Web Warriors number three before all you right, like right, reach through right. the computer and choke me out. I'm gonna get you, Spider right. Gwen. <laughs> Whoops! I almost knocked uh, my computer off the table, Dan. I hope uh, that doesn't show up on the microphone. <laughs> all right, so Web Warriors number three. Let's count you in in three, two, one. Web Warriors continues to turn up the funometer with every issue, Dan. Oh, I'm, I'm getting catchy here. Sure, we get some evil person bantering monologuing in this issue, which theoretically would drag down a story. But overall, Web Warriors is an old school dish of good versus evil and cosmic adventures. The multiversal electros have proven to be the perfect set of bad guys to throw down against the remaining spider army. And even characters who are poorly misused or abused in Spider-Verse like Karn, the alternative Uncle Ben, they get some moments to shine and be heroes uh for team book there sometimes seems to be a tad too much focus on your favorite gwendan but she is the breakout character 
like it or not. So uh, I'll accept it for now, but uh, it is something to be mindful of. But I'm, I'm still saying for this particular issue, fan club certified. Okay, Dan, I, this, this is our last one, by the way, for the episode, but uh, I will count you in in three, two, one. Uh, Mark, I'll admit that I continue to think that the idea of Spider-Man as a multiverse traveling superhero kind of takes away from the everyman aspect of the character, as we discussed in our review of Nothing Stops the Juggernaut. I feel like any of these Spider-Men could stop the Juggernaut these days. But uh, boy, if Web Warriors isn't one of the most fun out-there Spider-Man books that I've ever read. This book is what Spider-Verse should have been, and boy, if it isn't quickly becoming one of my favorite Spider-Books to read. The Electros, to me, are the standout here. Some of, these are some of the funniest characters and designs I've seen in a Spider-Man book, and particularly for a Spider-Man villain in quite a while. David Baldion, he draws a smile and a wink into every page that just allows me to have fun with the book and, and allows it to be knowingly silly. And I, you know what? I can't re- wait to read what bizarre new concepts they come up with next. So I'm calling this one Fan Club Certified. Woo! Cutting it close, bud. Woo, take a big breath. Well, yeah. And so speaking of cutting it close and bad transitions, why don't we close the show, Dan? All right. (laughs) Of course, you can find all of our new Amazing Spider Talk and our quite old Superior Spider Talk podcast at this point in time. Uh, at superiorspidertalk.com or find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching for Amazing Spider Talk. And if you do, please be sure to leave us a rating and a comment to let us know how we're doing and we'll read it on the air. Yeah, and be sure to check out both of our Facebook pages and subscribe to our sister podcast, The Ultimate Spin, to keep up with the adventures of Spider-Gwen and Miles Morales. And we're going to have some new adventures of Miles Morales any day now, right? Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait. And, uh, of course, if you have any opinions on these comics or any questions, you know, maybe you love or hate Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut, be sure to email them to us at AmazingSpiderTalk at gmail.com or even call 9RedGoblin, our hotline. We've gotten actually a couple of voicemails since uh, we last asked for them, so keep those voicemails coming in. And be sure to tweet at us also with okay, hashtag OK to print, and we'll address and read all of these various things on the air. And I would be remiss, Mark, if I didn't yet again mention the friendly Neighborhood Spider Talk Members Club that helps us to support the show. And don't forget that you can win a copy of the brand new Marvel's The Avengers Encyclopedia hardcover book chronicling all the various members of the Avengers team over the years. And addition, of course, all of our members of the club get weekly digital comics and t-shirts in the mail. So be sure to click on the logo on both of our sites and sign up today. Woo, today! Well, Dan, where can we find you on Twitter? Oh, well, I know we can find you on Twitter. Where can I find you on Twitter and elsewhere? Well, of course, you can find me on Twitter at, at @supspidertalk. Thank you, Mark, for giving me a great introduction there to this this outro of our show. More uh, transitions, great transitions. There, there we go. So, Sup Spider Talk, that's on Twitter, and you can read all of the Spider-Man writing going on at superiorspidertalk.com, uh, of which I'm the wonderful editor of. And uh, you can read all of my movie reviews, including an upcoming review of the film Son of Saul, poised to win the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film at GrindMyReels.com. How about you, Mark? Wow, foreign films. 
Sign me up. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you can, of course, find my writings on www.superiorspidertalk.com. Uh, one of my most recent Spider-Man mutant pieces was from Untold Tales of Spider-Man number 21. So, Chris Dunn, you can now read that story in your new omnibus. Uh, and you can find out if you think it is one of the best Spider-Man mutant stories of all time. Uh, beyond that, you can, of course, find me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog. Um, and that's about it for social media for me. I'm, I'm kind of a, kind of a hermit, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I should become more of a hermit. I could only there. aspire to taking myself down a level, but I think you tweet more than me. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, Mark, I do know that you and your uncle Ben have a real history with New York city, you know, having grown up there and, and lived in the city and raising a child in New York, uh, just as your Uncle Ben once did, although not uh, of his own, not his own child. Uh, no. Sadly, no. your your Aunt May was was uh, was barren. Uh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, although that's a, quite a personal thing to bring up here, but uh, you know, I had no idea the other day that your Uncle Ben actually helped to create New York City when he worked in construction as a cement layer in downtown Manhattan. It's. I find it odd. I find it kind of silly that you know, of all the Uncle Ben stories I've told over the years, Aunt May being barren seems to be the one that's a bit too personal and tragic for us. <laughs> <laughs> like we never get into that. <laughs> Maybe but, another but, episode. Yeah, but I, but as for Uncle Ben, um, yeah. So uh, Uncle Ben was was. Um, he 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 was salt of the earth kind of a guy. I mean, you know, we we've we've heard about Uncle Ben over the years. He he uh, made um, mob ties. Remember that? Yeah, his his mob ties. I I'll never uh, forget his experience with monkeys. Yes, monkeys um, with with um, with hotcakes. Yeah, I mean, of you course. know, like I mean, he got killed eating hotcakes, but uh, you know, so. Um, Uncle Ben um, originally applied um, to uh, be one of the uh, workers on uh, the Panama Canal. Is that um, true? But, uh, but he was rejected. So instead, he was going to uh, build the Brooklyn Bridge. Oh. So, so this dates him like what, the 1800s? I mean, my Uncle Ben is pretty old. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, so, um, you know, I was only born in 1981, but somehow I remember my Uncle Ben talking to me about building the Brooklyn Bridge. But um, maybe maybe I'm not thinking of Uncle Ben. Either way, someone died working on the Brooklyn Bridge. I think it might have been Uncle Ben. Your recollection is not great today. I think he got buried in cement. Um, I think like a big, big red hooded guy came rolling through one time and like knocked him off the girder he fell like 30 stories and as he fell into the cement plummeting speeding up he goes with great podcast must also come amazing spider talk splat